My name is David Watson. I'm one of the elders here. And normally when I get up, you're thinking there's going to be an announcement on the pastoral search process. I'm sorry, I'm preaching today. (laughs) But you can be praying for the elders. I know they are in the midst of um, reviewing Brad and praying about whether Brad should be the next preaching pastor. And as I was studying this text, the prayer that came to my mind was in Jesus says, not my will, but thy will be done. And we can be praying for the Lord's will to be done as we approach that process of of hiring. I've been reading Jonathan Edwards' book recently called Religious Affections. In the preface, he opens with this line. There is no question whatsoever that is of greater importance to mankind and that it more concerns every individual person to be well resolved in than this. What are the distinguishing qualifications of those that are in favor with God and entitled to his eternal rewards? Edwards goes on in his book, to make the distinction between Christians and non-Christians, between those who are saved and those who are not saved. And, and there's probably nothing more worthy of our consideration than this, but for those of you who are assured of your salvation, it should impact how you think about evangelism and the weight of that. For example, how do you evangelize if faith is required? How does one receive faith, or how does one attain faith? How does God use people in that? How does God use his word in that? How does God use events in that? What what does God use? What should evangelism look like? I remember growing up, and I went to a Dare to Share event. Anybody been to a Dare to Share uh, event? And you had to go out and knock on random doors, and share the gospel, and nobody really responded in an affirmative manner. And I remember crafting up a plan separately to share the gospel with one of my friends who lived down the street, and I remember sharing the gospel with him and the good news of Christ, and, and he, he agreed and assented to it, but there was really no fruit in his life. And, and had he truly come to saving faith, I, I believe there would have been some fruit of the Spirit there. And ultimately, I came to the false conclusion that evangelism wasn't really my thing, wasn't really my responsibility. But is my lack of produce in these initiatives really the reason reason I should stop evangelizing? Deep inside of me, I know that feeling is wrong. If I believe in an eternal heaven and an eternal hell, how could I not be out there sharing the good news that Christ did for me on the cross. When I read the Great Commission in Matthew, I remember defining it as going and making disciples of all nations. And unfortunately, that's only one little snippet of the Great Commission. And it wouldn't be until years later I would understand how the Great Commission began and ended. 
If you have your Bibles, open to Psalm 145. We're going to look there and answer one question for you today. How does evangelism begin and end? Now, let me give you a little bit of background on this psalm. It's an acrostic psalm or an alphabetical psalm. Every verse in Psalm 145 begins with the letter of the Hebrew alphabet in order. And you may be noticed on the slides, you'll notice in your text, verse 13, the second half, some scriptures have it omitted. Mine has it in brackets, says the Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. Between verse 13 and 14, there was a Hebrew word or a Hebrew letter missing. Some of the original scriptures didn't have it. And then they found some that did have it. So you'll see it in brackets there. I tend to believe it was probably there in light of the fact that every Hebrew uh, letter was going. A couple other things. Every verse has two phrases as you read this psalm. In about three quarters of them, the second phrase begins with the word and. But you will see two, two phrases uh, with each, each, each verse. Also, based on my study... Every verse corresponds with another verse in this text. Take, take for example, the first verse, which, which we'll start with. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. That's connected to the last verse in Psalm 145. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. So we're going to, as we go through and as I preach this, Sometimes I will be talking about a verse and connect it with another verse, because I, I tend to believe every verse here kind of connects with another verse, but it's, those are the only ones that are beginning and the end. The others are within the, the paragraphs, or at least how the ESV laid out some of the paragraphs. And in between the opening and closing, the first verse and the last verse, we're going to see three sections about God and three sections about people. So let's... Let's start. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Extol, in the Latin, ex means upward, toler means raise. In other words, we want to raise up who God is. You know, the dictionary would define extol as praising enthusiastically, but I like to look at it as we're going to elevate him up to a new height. And we see I and my in this opening. David, the author here, is making this very, very personal. I will extol you, my God and my King. He takes ownership, and he goes on, and bless your name forever and ever. I was talking to my brother-in-law a week or two ago about this word bless. He's a pastor up in Omaha. And he was just saying when he thinks of the word bless, he thinks of generosity and giving. When you bless somebody, you have given them something. But what can we give God who has everything? There's really nothing good that we can give him that he hasn't already given us. We just give him our praise and our obedience and the blessings he's given us right back to him. It reminds me of the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. 
we focus on just bringing God all the glory that we can. And I'm sure, hopefully, all of you have seen the Faith Bible Church kind of purpose and mission. It's that circle, reach, mature, equip. It's around the outside. We're to reach people, mature them in Christ, and equip them. And in the middle of the bullseye is glorify. Our purpose is to uh, glorify the Lord, and we're going to come back to that. Let's move on to verse 2 and 3. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. There's three main questions here that are going to get answered. What are we doing? When are we doing it? And to whom are we doing it? So what are we doing? Praise. We're praising God. The English word means to set a price on something. Think of appraise or getting an appraisal on a house. This past week I had an employee who purchased a home with her husband, their first home. And I'm going to make these numbers up, but they were buying a house, and let's just say they were buying a house for $250,000. And so they went to the bank and they applied for a mortgage. And the bank approved them based on their income and credits and all that. But the bank, in order to protect themselves, they send an appraiser out to get an appraisal on the value of the home to determine if it's a worthy home to give a loan to. And this appraisal came back short, came back about $15,000 short. So the bank said, you're trying to buy this home for $250,000, and the home is only worth $235,000. We cannot give you a loan. And the deal was going to dissolve and fall apart until somebody decided to check the appraiser's work and realized he forgot to include one of the bathrooms in the home. So turns out a home with two bathrooms is worth less than a home with three bathrooms. And once that was fixed, proper value could be put on the home and the value of the home is raised. And so we're praising God, we're placing value on him. When are we praising God? There's two mentions of time here. Every day I will bless you. And the second mention of time is praise your name forever and ever, which also comes in verse 1. And you should note the author is emphasizing forever because he could have stopped there, but he says forever and ever. We didn't need the next two words, but it should really make us ponder eternity. You know, how, how do we think about time? I was thinking about this as I was studying the passage. How do we think about time? And there's some interesting science with time, but time requires space and matter. So time, space, and matter are all needed for time. Actually, when you read Genesis 1-1 in the beginning, so you got time, there was the heavens. God created the heavens, you got space and the earth, you have matter. And, and they, they all come about simultaneously. And it's very difficult for us 
to conceive of eternity backwards in time. Uh, theologians say that we have eternity. It's a term where we have a beginning but no end. And so it's kind of easier for us to think about time moving forward, but kind of really difficult for us to think about time backwards, and that's because God exists outside of time. Time really doesn't exist unless the earth is spinning and moving around the sun for us, and that's how we get our days and our weeks and our years, is God really created time for us. But we, we tend to think about time in a, in a number of ways. You've got prior to creation time, which we don't spend much time thinking about, then we think about creation up until maybe our life started. And then we look at our life history. We look at today, our life's future, and then eternal future. So many people spend a lot of time thinking about their life history. I remember in college, senior year, one of my friends invited me over to his apartment, and he popped in VHS tapes. And kids, if you don't know what a VHS tape is, it's kind of like a DVD if you don't know what a DVD is, kind of like a streaming movie. Um, but it was VHS tapes back then. And he was showing me his play as a quarterback in high school, reliving the glory of his past. I personally tend to think about my life's future. I like to envision things and plan things and work ahead. And it, and it hit me a couple years ago that I can idolize the future at the expense of the present. This text is calling us to think about today and eternity. What segments of time do you focus on? Today and forever. And to whom are we praising today and forever? The Lord. We're going to learn that the Lord here is great and three times great is mentioned. In verse 3, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. It is infinite. That's what unsearchable means. You cannot see it all. It continues to go forever and ever and ever. As an appraiser ourselves, we didn't just miss the bathroom we missed about the entire house. We cannot comprehend the greatness of God. He, it, it, and it's just incredible to think about. And this is also why we will be able to praise his name forever and ever and ever. And it's not boring. I don't think eternity is going to be so much like your favorite sporting event or activity. I think we will be incredibly overwhelmed by the greatness of God and continuing to uncover that more and more and more as we go forward. How does one respond to the greatness of God? Let's read verses 4 through 7. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate they shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness, and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. 
Just imagine every generation recording the acts of God. That list would go on forever. Even, you know, we study the scriptures and we realize from the gospels, not all the acts, not all the miracles, not all the things that Jesus did were recorded in there. It goes on forever and ever. As an individual, you should be sharing the great acts of God with other people, with your kids. And we're going to come back to that with parents and what that looks like. But as we, as we look at this passage, one generation shall commend your works to another, I think it's easy to think about this as a parent and maybe a little bit harder to think about it if your children are fully grown. Sometimes you can think, I'm done, I'm retired, it's time to enjoy my, my life. And I, I want to encourage and challenge some of you with words that Warren Wearsby had shared. Warren is now with, with the Lord, but he, he said this, the greatest asset to the local church is older people who continue to grow. The greatest liability to the local church is older people who cease to grow. Older people, you are vital to making this continue for every generation to know the Lord. He, he had another quote, I don't have it written down, but he would just say, in church history and biblical history, young people would begin to move when older people would begin to pray. You have a role in passing this on to the next generation. When we praise God, we look at verse 5, and he says, On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate we just want to camp out and meditate and think about God's greatness. And verse 5, I, I, I think, corresponds with verse 7. As we meditate and as we commend our works to another, verse 7 says, we, pour, we shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness. Pour forth literally means to gush out like a fountain gushing water, and overflowing. You can't contain yourself when you praise God. We know it. We've all seen that person that has been spending time in private, worshiping God, walking with God, and we can sense their closeness to God. You feel it. You, you, can just, you could just tell. They're overflowing with the Lord. They're changed. But as I also think, as I think about this, one generation shall commend your works to another. And in verse 6, they shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds. We're, we're talking actually about evangelism here and sharing with others. And John Piper has this quote that I think is true. He says, missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions exist because worship doesn't. But I have another quote that I also think is true. Missions exist because worship does. 
Now, how can both of those things be true? Missions exist because worship doesn't and because worship does. It exists because worship doesn't because when people are not worshiping God, we need to go on mission. If everybody was worshiping God, there would be no need for missions. But the only reason missions happens is because somebody first worshiped God. Praise powers evangelism. That's the key. I go on mission because I have first seen God's greatness. I have seen that His greatness is infinite. If you are sitting there today and you are not on mission, don't ask yourself, what am I going to do? You need to ask yourself, how have your times of worship been? How are you going to make the worship of our great God a priority? When we think back to the Faith Bible Church purpose and mission, I think the same is true, not only for reaching, which is evangelism, but also maturing and equipping. We reach because we worship first, and then we help others worship where it doesn't exist. We mature because through worship. That's how we we mature. And we equip others by first worshiping God and seeing who He is, and then we lead others to more and better worship and to lead others to more and better worship. You cannot reach, mature, and equip without praise, without worship. Jesse Schmidt actually sent a quote while I was preparing the sermon. He had no idea, but from A.W. Tozer, and I thought it fit in perfectly. It says this, A.W. Tozer said this, We're here to be worshipers first and workers only second. We take a convert and immediately make a worker out of him. God never meant it to be so. God meant that a convert should learn to be a worshiper, and after that, he can learn to be a worker. The work done by a worshiper will have eternity in it. Evangelism begins with worship. Private worship will enable you to pour forth and meditate upon God's greatness. Family worship. We call this, some people call it family devotions or personal devotions. I like to call it private worship and family worship because what we're really doing is worshiping God when we go approach His Word and pray and sing. Parents, you need to be doing family worship with your kids. Worshiping with them by opening God's word together. And if you're single, you can still participate in impacting the next generation. I'm sure Elizabeth Woods down here would love to talk to you about joining Awana and volunteering and sharing with with our kids. There are lots and lots of opportunities The last phrase in this section in verse 7 says, and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Some of you like to believe that you're the frozen chosen. You've heard that phrase. But there is no room for a frozen mouth amongst the chosen. You, You don't just sing either. You actually sing 
aloud. And you can't blame your poor voice on this. This is true. My nickname from my buddies in youth group in high school growing up was One Tone. I'm sorry, Dave, you were in front of me while I was singing this morning. <laughs> we can sing. And when you are meditating on God in His Word, you're seeing His greatness, your singing will overflow. It will, it will pour forth out of you. You want to sing to God. If you're not singing much, why are you not singing much? Is it because you've not much, spent much time in private gazing upon the greatness of God? Let's move on to the next section. We, so we've seen a little bit about God. We've seen our response. So God is great. We've responded with evangelism and sharing and singing. And now we're going to move back to learning about God in 8 and 9. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. When we focus on God's greatness, it really helps us to see our sin. You know, sometimes we feel worthy to approach God. And we feel like we've been, been pretty good, and, and, and other times we um, don't feel worthy. We've, we've been in sin, and, and what, what are we really doing in, in some of these moments? And I would contend in, in a lot of ways we're, we're being legalistic because you're really never worthy of your own accord to a, approach the Lord. I, I recently was studying the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5 in Matthew, the last verse ends and Jesus says, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And if we can see that his infiniteness, or, or that his greatness is infinite, there would be a massive chasm between him and us. It is only by the grace and the mercy of God, the great act of Christ on the cross, that even allows us to approach God in prayer, in worship, in anything. He is worthy, and we rely on that. We should also see His mercy. His mercy begins in, in verse 8. And it ends in verse 9. And we're, we're going to come back to that because we're also going to see his kindness later, his mercy and his, his kindness. So we have God's greatness. We respond in evangelism. Here we see God's grace and his mercy. And now we're going to read the response 10 through 13a. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. 
So we see two responses here in verse 10. Thanksgiving and blessing God. All your saints shall bless you. So how do we respond to God's grace and mercy? The first thing is thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Now some commentators said all your works give thanks, meaning not just believers, but even as um, just the fact that God created everything, we owe him thanks, and we'll see how he's the provider here in a little bit, and we owe him uh, thanks, and so everybody owes thanks. But I want to look at part two of this verse. It says, all your saints shall bless you. So we take a shift to believers, and believers ought to be blessing the Lord. Christ gave his entire life for us, we ought to be giving our entire lives back to him. And there's two responses now of the saints to other people here in verse 11 and uh, 12. Or, or they, they should speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power. Here we have more evangelism. Speaking and telling. And if that's not explicit enough, he makes the purpose in verse 12 known. To make known to the children of man. Now, children of man could be referring to all mankind. Uh, it could also be referring to non-believers as well. So the saints versus the children of man. But to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. We speak and tell in order to make him known to others. So, we see his grace and his mercy, and we respond actually in evangelism, speaking and telling. Do you see the pattern yet? We praise him, we see his greatness, and we evangelize. We praise him, we see his grace, and we evangelize. And we also respond in thanksgiving. I don't have this in my notes, but thanking God in front of others is a great way to share the great acts of God. And anybody can do that with anybody. We move on in this section in 11, 12, and 13, and we see the word kingdom three times. Verse 11, they shall speak of the glory of your kingdom. Verse 12, the, and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Verse 13, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Take that back. We see it four times in three, three verses. Glory means to magnify. We actually sang a song about magnify. So we want to make God's kingdom bigger. We want to magnify it. We want more people in his kingdom. And we really shouldn't get tired of sharing about his kingdom because it's an everlasting kingdom. It goes on and on forever and ever and it should go on forever and ever because we've already learned his greatness is unsearchable and goes on forever and ever. Now, kingdom is, is a, uh, one of those words that's difficult to understand, so I'm going to way oversimplify it. Somebody did this for me, and it really helped. They just said, what is God's kingdom? It's anywhere that God is king. Now, that's his kingdom. Now, he is king over everything, of course. But 
We need to choose him to make him the king of our lives every moment of every day, continually. And I want to point out the connection of verse 13 to verse 4. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures throughout all generations. And verse 4, we have one generation shall commend your works to another. We were singing about this and praying about it. His kingdom would continue to advance forever and ever and ever. And we make his power known through thanksgiving as well, sharing what he has done. So we've got praising God's greatness, we respond in evangelism. Praising God's grace, we respond in evangelism. And now we're going to go to a section where we learn about God's kingdom. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. All is appearing quite a lot, but I want to point out at the end of verse 13, it says kind in all his works. and the end of verse 17, it says kind in all his works. And whenever you see repeated phrases like that, we often want to look between them and see what it's talking about. And we see God's kindness here over and over. Verse 14, the Lord upholds all who are following and raises up all who are bowed down. Up is listed twice, upholds and up, and falling and bow down is listed twice. Mercy in this text is listed twice. Kindness is listed twice here. We can see God wants to take those in situations of adversity and raise them up. Commentators discuss this as I was studying it, that falling and bow down tend to mean times of adversity. And when he upholds you, it is continually, not just a one time. There's some common grace here for everybody. I get the sense, too, that as he's, he's trying to lift us, lift us up, and we, we know we extol him, we, we raise him up, we... We view him as high, and, and we are falling down. And what is he doing? He's reaching down, and he's raising us up to be closer to him. And we're going to see that here in verse 18. The Lord is near to all who call on him. God actually wants to be close with you. Isn't this kind of the point of evangelism? To ultimately praise God? and to draw in close to who he is, and to see what a great God we have. Verse 15, the eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. God meets our needs. God provides our earthly needs. We've seen this in farming. There's been a number, I'm not in farming, but talking to farmers and reading the news. I just read an article this week that there was the same amount of rain in the month of July 
in a lot of areas as there was in April, May, and June combined. There was a drought. Everybody looks to God for their food. He has to ultimately provide. In verse 16, you open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. God meets our needs in verse 15. He meets our desires in verse 16. Now we have to be careful here. Sin is meeting or attempting to meet a desire in an incorrect way. Meeting a desire in a way outside the, the, the way the Lord intends us. So often we feel like our desires are not met, and we're really trying to meet our desires in an improper way. And that's important because it moves on in verse 17 to say, The Lord is righteous in all his ways. We need a reminder of that right after hearing about how God meets our needs, God meets our desires, we can correct God quite often and think he's not really meeting our needs, not really meeting our desires. But God is righteous. Here's the final response to seeing God as faithful and kind and righteous. Verses 18 to 20. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. As you see God meeting so many of your earthly needs, do we see that he can meet our eternal needs? We actually see prayer here in verse 18 and 19. The Lord is near to all who call on him. To all who call on him. It's the same phrase, back to back. To all who call on him, to all who call on him. Here we have prayer. We're lifting up to God and, and calling on Him. In verse 19, it says, He also hears their cry. Calling to Him, crying to Him. And who wouldn't call on a God that is faithful and kind? We respond by praising His faithfulness and His kindness in prayer. In wanting to be close. And God promises to be close to Him. I was discussing this passage with Jamie last night. And she was just saying, you know, in the first part of the passage, I think of God doing these great and mighty acts like creation and kind of far off and in, in, in the distant future. And as we get later on in the passage, God is getting closer and closer and closer. And as we see people coming to know the Lord, what can we get? We can get closer to God and have a relationship with him and know who he is. How should men pray? And women, by the way, just using it generally. We should pray in truth. We call on him in truth. We tend to profane prayer. 
by praying our own needs and our own desires from the prior section and then being angry and mad at God when he doesn't deliver. And that's why we need that reminder of righteousness. But we should be praying, as I mentioned earlier, not my will, but thy will. Not my will, but your will, Lord, be, be done. The truth I was thinking about that word truth more too, and I was thinking what Jesus says in John 17, your word is truth. He is truth as well. I've, I've heard many people talk about prayer, and I just want to give you one of my favorite ways of praying, and that's to read the scripture first and then pray what it says. Many men of faith, great men of faith, they say in their times of private worship, they used to pray and then read their Bible, and they switch that. They read their Bible, and then they pray. They let God's Word direct how they are going to pray. And let me give you a challenge. You can actually do this with Psalm 145 later today. Some of you have heard the, the um, acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S. It stands for Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. That's another way I decided not to teach on it this way, but that's how this Psalm 145 is structured. So if you want to pray scripture, here's one practical way you can do it. Verses 1 to 7 generally are adoration. Verses 8 and 9, talking about God's grace, you can move into confession. Verses 10 through the first half of 13 is thanksgiving. It opens, all your works shall give thanks to you. Starting in 13b with the brackets, you can move into supplication as it's talking about our needs and our desires. Acts, A-C-T-S, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. You can, you can read this text and just pray through it section by section by section. Now we get into verse 19, it says, He fulfills the desire of those who fear Him. We don't have a blank check in our prayer to ask God to do whatever He wants. We must be praying His will. And we're a little low on time to discuss that further. But I did think of 1 John 5. If we ask anything according to His will, or this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, he hears us. <clears throat> we also see that word fear. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. Now, sometimes you just hear fear defined as, as reverence. And while reverence is a part of fear, I, I want to suggest to you that one ought to fear God. <laughs> and just use the word fear for fear. We, we don't tend to think of it that way. We kind of like to soften it down and not actually fear God, but we should fear God. We, we could have said revere God, but it says fear God. And I think this is going to be important because eternity is real. Eternity is real. And we see this in the next phrase, he hears their cry and saves them. We need saving. This is why this passage is about praise and evangelism. It leads to saving. We need to be saved by God. Only by Christ's work on the cross 
to pay the penalty for our sins, can we be saved? We are not righteous enough. This is what it's leading to. And the mark of a true Christian here, the Lord preserves all who love him. A good mark of a true Christian is going to be one who loves God. When you are saved, it will result in loving God. The first fruit of the Spirit is love. And that will happen. But the opposite is also true. The end of verse 20 says, but all the wicked he will destroy. This text, that, 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 that last verse really helped me to understand slow to anger, which we see in verse 8. There's all these great things about God, his, his greatness, and we respond in evangelism, and his, and his graciousness, and his mercy, and we respond in thanksgiving, and evangelism, and his kindness, and all the things that he's doing for us. And it just goes on and on and on in this psalm. And then just one line at the end. But the wicked he will destroy. And that day is coming. The day of judgment is coming. It may seem like it's taking a little while to get there. It's, it's coming. We need to be looking to our Lord, and coming to Him, and praising Him, and going out and evangelizing, and making more worshipers, more people who praise Him. And we, we, we conclude here in verse 21, my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. David is still talking about himself here, but notice the transition, and let all flesh bless His holy name forever and ever. This psalm began with, I will extol your name, I will bless your name, and it ends, let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. And that's kind of the aim of the book of Psalms. The last verse in the whole book of Psalms, 150, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Everything is pointing forward to praising God evangelism ends with worship. Evangelism begins with worship, and evangelism ends with worship. When you ask somebody what the Great Commission is, most of the time they will answer, go and make disciples of all nations, and they might add a little bit to it. But the first words of Jesus are, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore. We first look and we see a God of all authority and who he is, and we praise him. And the Great Commission ends, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end. And so as we're going out, carrying out the Great Commission, it begins with seeing Christ and all his authority and who he is. And it ends seeing that Christ is with us, that God is with us and who he is. And so it begins and ends with praise. If I had slides, it'd be the little key that Brad does. Evangelism begins and ends with praise. That's the power of evangelism. And don't just take my word for it. I'll close with this. Billy Graham, often viewed as one of the greatest evangelists of modern time, was asked a question later in life. If you were to do things over again, would you do things differently? 
This was his answer. Yes. I would study more. I would pray more. I would travel less, take less speaking engagements. I took too many of them in too many places around the world. If I were to do it over again, I would spend more time in meditation and prayer and telling the Lord and just telling the Lord how much I love him and adore him and looking forward to the time we're going to spend together in eternity. Let's pray. Lord, we want to praise you. We want to praise your greatness, graciousness, your faithfulness. We want to praise you, Lord. We know praising you powers evangelism. We can't draw people to you, Lord. The Spirit does. We know that when we spend time with you, when we praise you, you change us. You desire to draw near to us, Lord. Help us to fixate our eyes on you every day and praise you and to know that's what eternity is going to be. And help us to see, Lord, that's not boring. That is awesome because your greatness is infinite and goes on forever and ever. Amen.